Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Friday the 11th of March 2022, from the politics section, Douglas Ross uses Ukraine excuse to defend U-turning and call for Boris Johnson to quit. By Laura Webster, News and Features Editor. Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross has defended his decision to withdraw his demand for Boris Johnson to resign over the Partygate saga, arguing our focus should be on Ukraine. Ross said, Anything else just seems trivial compared with the war adding he would support the government in its efforts to help Ukraine defend itself against the Russian invasion. The Prime Minister is expected to attend the Scottish Conservative Conference in person next week. The SNP said his decision was an utterly humiliating U-turn, while the Liberal Democrats said they had the backbone of a jellyfish. Ross defends U-turn in BBC interview. Speaking to the BBC on Friday, Ross said, We should be supporting the government to support the people of Ukraine, to support the government of Ukraine, because the real threat to everything at the moment is from Vladimir Putin. It's not actions that took place a couple of years ago, serious though they are. It's the actions that are happening right now, with people dying, children losing their lives and a country being destroyed through no no fault of their own. He continued, I know political opponents will criticise me for this, that's fine. I've had to take a decision looking at it, what's happening in the world scene at the moment. Looking at the issues that people are contacting me about, or speaking about, it dominates our conversations wherever you go at the moment. And anything else just seems trivial. It really does seem so small in comparison to a country defending itself against the atrocious actions from the Russians and Vladimir Putin. And that's why I think our focus should be on supporting and helping the people in Ukraine not in personal differences we may have with each other in the UK. He has left them looking ridiculous. On Thursday night, Ross was ridiculed by SNP Westminster Chief Ian Blackford and other opposition parties for the move. Only a few weeks ago he was categorical that Boris Johnson should be removed from Downing Street over his repeated rule-breaking, said Blackford. Now, apparently, he will roll out the carpet for the Prime Minister at the Scottish Conservative Conference and pretend that the no-confidence letter that he submitted with such fanfare never happened. And, of course, the entire Tory MSP group at Holyrood backed Douglas Ross in his demand that Boris Johnson quit, so they will no doubt be furious that he has marched him up a hill and now left them looking ridiculous. He should not be using the, the Ukraine crisis to go back on his principles. Meanwhile, Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar argued Ukraine was no reason for Ross to backtrack. We are right to be defending democracy in Ukraine, but that doesn't mean we stop doing democracy at home, he commented. This is a Prime Minister that has broken his own laws and shown contempt for the people of the UK. 
Douglas Ross should not be using the Ukraine crisis to go back on his principles. He knows Boris Johnson is not fit to be Prime Minister. And that article was by Laura Webster. From The National, Friday the 11th of March 2022, from the news section, Lorraine Kelly at centre of ITV bomb threat that forced shows off air, by Gregor Young. Lorraine Kelly has said it was a gift from a film company addressed to her that sparked a security alert at ITV that prompted the building to be evacuated and two tube stations to be closed. ITV's live shows were taking off air on Thursday and police were called after the suspicious package was delivered to the London studios where the daytime programmes are filmed. This morning went off air suddenly and loose women did not air a live show while tube stations White City and Wood Lane, which are both near the television centre, were closed. Appearing on Good Morning Britain, host Ben Shepherd asked Kelly if she was responsible for the evacuation. She replied, Apparently, I am told it was somebody from a film company had sent me a wee present and it had a battery in it and when they x-rayed it, it looked a little bit suspicious. But it was all fine and dandy and it's okay. This morning went on a went to an advert break during the final 15 minutes of the live show, but when it returned, a compilation episode started airing. Panel show Loose Women, which is on ITV immediately after this morning, also did not air a live show. Instead, viewers were shown presenter Nadia Sabala telling viewers they were seeing a very special episode of Loose Women, which would be showing the best bits of the Life Before Loose series. Reflecting on the interruption to the live broadcast, Kelly said, it shows the system all works so that's all fantastic. ITV's live programming returned in time for the lunchtime news at 1.30pm. A statement from the channel on Thursday said, due to a suspected security alert, the building which the ITV daytime broadcast was from was safely evacuated. The issue has been resolved and staff have been returned to the building following the all clear from the police. We apologise for the interruption to the schedule and we have now returned to normal programming. And that story was by Gregor Young. From The National, Friday the 11th of March 2022, from the news section, Plan for Vertical Launch Scottish Spaceport Reaches Milestone by Gregor Young. Licence applications for the UK's first vertical launch spaceport have been submitted to the industry regulator in a milestone for the project. Saxavord UK Spaceport, which will be located at Lamba Ness in Unst, was granted planning permission by Shetland Islands Council last month. Three launch pads will be built at the £43 million spaceport, allowing for the launch of small satellites into either polar or subsynchronous low-Earth orbits. Saxavord UK Spaceport has now formally submitted its spaceport and range licence applications to the industry regulator, the Civil Aviation Authority, CAA. Frank Strang, Chief Executive of Six Awards Spaceport, said, Our operations team have been working extremely hard on multiple fronts over the last two years to ensure that all the pieces of a very complicated jigsaw were prepared so we could hit the ground running as we started the year. Our licence applications mark the next milestone in our ambition to become the first orbital launch site in the UK. Our applications will now be assessed and evaluated by the CAA, a process which will take at least six months. 
The beginning of 2022 has already been significant for our team and for Shetland with approval of planning permission. I'm confident that the end of the year will be equally momentous for us and the UK vertical launch industry. The company is aiming to launch 30 rockets a year and to set the target of seeing its first orbital launch from UK soil after the third quarter of this year. Following the granting of a planning approval at the end of February, the Scottish Government has a 28-day window to review the application. Construction of the seaport can begin if Scottish ministers choose not to call the application in for review or call it in and agree that the project should proceed. It is hoped work can begin in late March. And that article is by Gregor Young. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 11th of March 2022. Comment. Home Office Response to Refugees is Cruel, Insular and Bureaucratic by Gillian Mackay, Scottish Greens MSP. This weekend I will be in Stirling for the Scottish Greens Spring Conference. I'm looking forward to meeting members and activists and reflecting on what has been a historic six months for our party. Under normal circumstances, it would be a very upbeat conference. The last six months have seen big steps towards a greener Scotland with record investment in nature restoration, active travel and recycling. My colleague Lorna Slater is introducing a ban on some of the worst single-use plastics. We are building a fairer Scotland with a Scottish child payment to be doubled to £20 per week in April, which will help to offset some of the damage done by Downing Street's decision to cut universal credit. We are also introducing a better deal for tenants, including rent controls. We have also delivered £145 million to recruit additional teachers and support staff, as well as record levels of support for mental health services. I will be delivering a private member's bill to introduce buffer zones around hospitals and sexual health clinics. This will curb the ability for protesters to intimidate people who are accessing abortion services. Everyone should be able to access their health care unimpeded and without harassment. It is a change that the public supports. Polling for starvation shows that the change is supported by 72% of people. I'm heartened by the emphatic levels of support, but it also underlines how shocking it is that such a bill is even necessary. However, this won't be a weekend of celebration. It can't be not when we are meeting at a time of such horrific instability and crisis. Our vision isn't one that starts and ends at our own borders. We are part of a global movement and a global family. We are internationalists. The illegal and immoral invasion of Ukraine has already killed thousands of people and displaced many more. So many lives have been turned upside down. Millions of people who were going about their daily lives a few weeks ago are now hiding for cover and living through an aerial bombardment. Every day that the war continues, there will be more atrocities, making a terrible situation even worse. Over the last two days alone, the Russian military has bombed a preschool and a children's hospital, turning the latter into rubble and trapping innocent people beneath it. There can be few acts as reprehensible and inhumane. Putin's forces have destroyed vital infrastructure across Ukraine. They have used cluster bombs and fired missiles into population centres. The damage that is being done could take years to rebuild, but a lot of the trauma will never heal. There has been an international outpouring of solidarity. 
There have been collections and demonstrations taking place all over the world, including major Protestants across Russia. But that solidarity on the ground must be reflected by governments. The powers of the Scottish Parliament are very limited in terms of what we can do to directly hurt the Kremlin, but we are pushing to do everything we can. We are taking steps by sending aid and medical equipment, disinvesting in Russian banks and urgently investigating what meaningful action can be taken against the oligarchs that have bankrolled the invasion and profiteered from Putin's years of repression. The most important thing that governments can do is provide support to the people that need it. Like in all wars, it's civilians and the most vulnerable who are being hurt the most. More than 2 million people have fled Ukraine and they need help now. We have called for the UK government to do its part, but so far it has fallen badly short. There have been lots of warm words and promises, but well-meaning words are not enough. If they want to live up to their pledges of solidarity and support, then Boris Johnson and his colleagues should be taking the lead from countries like Ireland, who have waived visa restrictions and processed three times as many refugees as the UK has, despite having one-tenth of the population. We can and must do so much better than the Home Office's cruel, insular and bureaucratic response. People's lives are on the line, but they prioritise paperwork and setting up hurdles. The mediocre baby steps forward will not cut it for those who desperately need our help. Unfortunately, it's characteristic of the kind of approach we have come to expect. This is a department and a government that brought us the Windrush scandal and the hostile environment. It's a government that locks up families in brutal detention centres like Dungavel while sending deportation vans into our communities to carry out dawn raids. The Home Office's historic lack of empathy and compassion towards refugees and migrant communities wasn't an accident, it was an active choice. And it will only get worse with the new Nationality and Borders Bill that threatens to criminalise people for being refugees in the first place. Perhaps it's no surprise that the same organisation is unable to respond with the pace and humanity that is required. This isn't about party politics, it's far bigger than that. It's a matter of right and wrong. There are lots of things I disagree with the Irish government about, but when it comes to offering safety and sanctuary to Ukrainians, the difference in approach has been like night and day. In six months' time, our party will come together again for our autumn conference. I hope with all my heart that the backdrop we are meeting to is one that is more stable and peaceful. I hope that this brutal war will have long since ended by then and that the people who have fled it are safe and secure. I hope that by the time we meet again, Ukraine will be rebuilding and that governments and people around the world are supporting them in doing so. This article was by Gillian Mackay. This article is from The National, date 14th March 2022 from the news section. Eden Mill gets green light for carbon neutral Scots distillery at St Andrews. By Jane MacLeod. Plans to build what could be one of the world's first carbon neutral distilleries have been approved. Gin and whisky producer Eden Mill has been given full planning permission for a new distillery and visitor centre in St Andrews. A 50-year land lease has been signed with the University of St Andrews with a new building to be constructed on its Eden campus, which provides a base for zero-carbon sustainable businesses. 
Stella Morse, chairwoman of the board of directors at Eden Mill St Andrews, said the drinks firm is delighted to have been granted planning permission and to have signed the lease for its new and ambitious contemporary gin and single malt Scots whisky distillery. She said, we are pleased to have worked in partnership with the University of St Andrews to secure planning permission for what will become one of Scotland's future iconic distilleries. Our values and ambition regarding sustainability are closely aligned and we look forward to opening the distillery to visitors from across the globe in 2023. Eden Mill founder and managing director Paul Miller said, the vision for the Eden Mill distillery has been closely developed with the University of St Andrews. Its fabulous location at the mouth of the River Eden meets the romantic requirements for single malt Scotch whisky, while the strictly sustainable nature of our new distillery and the environmentally innovative surroundings of the campus are perfect for our progressive brand. Derek Watson of the University of St Andrews said they have now reached an exciting milestone in the relationship between the University of St Andrews and Eden Mill. He added, the regeneration of the former paper mill site will breathe new life into the local economy of Gardbridge and have a beneficial impact on St Andrews. That article was by Jane McLeod. This article is from The National, date 14th March 2022, from the News section. More than half of middle-aged Scots not getting enough sleep, poll finds. By Jane McLeod. Middle-aged Scots are not getting at least seven hours of sleep a night, pollsters have found with almost four in ten revealing they are stressed. A survey of 30 to 59 year olds across Scotland that revealed that more than half are not getting the recommended minimum sleep, with almost 40% telling pollsters at Ipsos Murray they feel stressed often or all of the time. And in the poll of 931 Scots, one third told the Brain Health Scotland survey that their opportunities for social engagements are limited to only once a month or less. Now the initiative, which is hosted and supported by charity Alzheimer's Scotland, is urging people to take steps to keep their brains healthy in later life, to sleep more, stress less and socialise. Anna Borthwick Executive lead at Brain Health Scotland said, Being mindful of our stress levels, sleep patterns and sociability, as well as wider health aspects, can help us as a nation to improve our brain health and reduce the number of people developing dementia. According to the initiative, good brain health not only lessens the risk of dementia, but also improves mental well-being. Scots are also being encouraged to see factors often linked to heart disease as the key contributors to good brain health. In the survey, 55% of those asked were clinically overweight and 53% said they were exposed to air pollution once or twice a week. As we sleep, 
Our brains clean themselves, flushing out waste products that accumulate each day. Disrupted sleep can interfere with this process, causing a build-up of harmful proteins. According to Brain Health Scotland, when stress levels get too high, the hormones released can be toxic to brain cells, increasing the likelihood of problems linked to memory and thinking. Being sociable stimulates our brains and makes stress or depression less likely. And Brain Health Scotland said it builds a reserve capacity that cuts the risk of memory defects, processing difficulties and dementia. That article was by Jane McLeod. This article is from The National, date 14th March 2022, from the Politics section. Tories stand former UKIP Chair Paul Henk in Stirling Council election, by Xander Richards. The Tories and UKIP are indistinguishable, the SNP have said in reaction to news that UKIP's former Scottish chairman is to stand for the Conservatives in the May council elections. Paul Henk, a bomb disposal expert turned novelist, is aiming to win a seat on Stirling Council in the 4th and Endrick Ward. Henk was formerly the Scottish chairman of the pro-Brexit UKIP, running for office while Nigel Farage was at the party's head. He battled the party in court in 2014 after they banned him for 100 years following his decision to publicly criticise UKIP's Scottish European election candidate, former London party chairman David Coburn. Commenting at the time, Henk told The Observer, I've been in UKIP for eight years, stood in every election and spent a great deal of time, effort and money. Henk had his ban overturned on the grounds that it amounted to an expulsion in a legal battle which reportedly cost UKIP around £30,000. After the battle, Henk left UKIP and later joined the Tories. SNP MSP Michelle Thompson said the Conservatives' decision to stand him in the May elections showed that Boris Johnson's party and UKIP were indistinguishable. She told the National, when it comes to the Tories, you're never too far away from the far right and allowing the former chair of UKIP to stand as a candidate demonstrates that. The Tories and UKIP are indistinguishable. This is another demonstration of how the Tories are completely out of touch with the people of Scotland as they stand a candidate whose former party have never even been near the fringes of politics in Scotland. The only party that has and will continue to stand up for the people of Scotland is the SNP and that is why it has to be a vote for the SNP on May 5th. In a statement, on the Stirling Conservative Association website where Henk's candidacy is announced, no mention is made of his having stood for office in the past for another party or for the Tories in Bannockburn in 2017. He's quoted as saying, I have watched as our services slowly but surely deteriorated. This year I decided to do more and put my name forward to stand for the May elections. I'm delighted to be selected and look forward to the campaign. 
All our communities deserve councillors that will work for them and with them to get the investment, support and services they deserve, rather than the cuts they have had to endure. A spokesman for the Scottish Conservatives said, Paul Hink stood for us in 2017 and he's standing for us again to stop the SNP and take forward the local priorities that matter to the people of Forth and Endrick. The Forth and Endrick ward returned three councillors. In 2017, 2012 and 2017 there was one SNP, one Tory and a third seat which changed hands between those parties and Labour. That article was by Xander Richards. From the National, Monday the 14th of March 2022, from the comment section, Rutherland Ladies, Remembering the Inspirational Women's Football Team, by Murray McGonigal, sports columnist. There's a new documentary about to hit our screens on BBC Alba, tracing the little-known Rutherland ladies who played football in the 1920s. This is a team full of inspirational, kind-hearted and determined women who continued to play even though it was frowned upon by most corners of society. In England, a formal ban was introduced in 1921, whilst in Scotland it was later, just after the Second World War. However, even before then, it is believed the Scottish FA discouraged its members from letting women play in their pitches. The sole purpose of this team of extraordinary women was to entertain the crowds that came to watch them and raise money for charity. So, in this sense, it was more acceptable to some. Sadie Smith was the captain, and, by all accounts, a tricky player, and this came as a revelation to her granddaughter, singer Eddie Reader. Her grandmother spoke about her football days, and that's very sad to hear, as now, when we look back, there is immense pride in what these women achieved in the face of very strong resistance. Dr Fiona Skillen has to be commended for her detective work, in uncovering this story, which is produced by Purple TV for BBC Alba and will air on Saturday, April the 9th at 9pm. Unfortunately, I don't think the same can be said for football today. While we look back with pride on the achievements of today's players off the field, certainly there are one or two of football's elite who haven't forgotten where they came from, but generally the money they receive and the lifestyle that they create distances them from reality, real people, and their problems. For anyone about to take a sip of their coffee, hold on for just a moment as I don't want you to choke when I say Chelsea Football Club has a wage bill of £20 million per month. How can this be justified? This particular pot of gold is about to disappear and the repercussions of this in other clubs, within one of the wealthiest leagues in the world, is still an unknown quantity. It would be no bad thing to get a bit more realism in player wages and, with the problems that we're all facing in terms of income versus expenditure, buying tickets and purchasing overinflated prices for replica shirts might be one of the first casualties from the, from the domestic purse. And that was a comment piece by Maureen McGonagall. From the National, Monday the 14th of March 2022, from the comment section, why are energy prices rising if the big six are posting record profits? By Stephen Payton, calmness. It's becoming something of an annual tradition. The march of the big six energy companies valiantly reaching out just to let you know that an increase in the cost of your electricity and gas is on the horizon. 
along with the simpering, hand-wringing regrets that su such an increase in it is unfortunately out of their control. But riddle me this. If big energy suppliers are in a constant battle to stay afloat in the midst of rising, rising costs, hitting pensioners with price hikes that leave them choosing between heating or eating, then why do these same organisations inevitably come to post-record breaking operation, operating profits with such constituency? In light of the big six banking more than £7.5 billion in cumulative earnings before interest and taxes in just the five past five years, the annual appeal from suppliers feels like it's an honest update on the intricacies of the market and more like a prank phone call. A boardroom of suits giggling and egging their friend holding the phone on just to see how far they can push it. Leaving all of us with no real alternative other than paying out to the nose to keep the lights on, it feels offensively disingenuous to characterise reckless profiteering for the company's golden shareholders as an unfortunate yet necessary course of action. Something the energy sector clearly knows, given its history of attempting to hide profits from the public lest the situation turns any uglier. It's with this in mind that, when I talk about securing energy independence for Scotland, I mean not only from a degree of dependence on imported fossil fuels, but also the profit-orientated companies that actively exploit our needs. The invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent discussion of sanctions on Russian oil and gas imports started another conversation on our inability to sustain ourselves in the face of a global crisis. While the UK is not so reliant on Russian oil and gas as much as the rest of Europe, that in no way means we should not be seeking a better solution to the future of our fuel and energy needs. Given the limited nature of oil and gas as a resource, it was inevitable that in giving dominance and power to the industry, that power would flow to those who control the resource. And now, here we are, seemingly in a position of being unable to fully, ethically divest from oil and gas due to our over-reliance on it. Britain is facing a legitimate and serious cost-of-living crisis across the board, and yet it has not stopped our electricity companies from considerably jacking up the prices of electricity and gas, even as they continue to post, post these profits. It is perverse that the big six are trying to justify a price increase of up to £693 a year immediately following recorded profits of £3.06 billion in 2020 alone. Yet, despite the stranglehold on the economy and on people living in Scotland that these parasitic entities hold, there still remains a bizarre stronghold of support for investing further into the industries that give them dominance. SNP MSP Fergus Ewing, below, the former energy minister went as far as describing the Scottish Green Party's views on oil and gas as extreme just last week. Setting aside for, for a second the ecological argument on why this is beyond ignorant, why should anyone even consider the case that maintaining and investing in a famously volatile industries is in any way the solution to the problems caused by said industries? Particularly when Scotland is poised to be a manufacturing powerhouse, in renewable energy and fossil fuel decommissioning, spending the money and maintaining the old power structures can only hinder the growth of potential and necessary future industries and the just transition towards them. Of course, beyond an investment in green and renewable sectors, there also needs to be a firm commitment to keeping the exploitations of energy companies out with our future energy plans.
And in this area, the Scottish Government have so far spectacularly failed. The once promised not-for-profit National Energy Company, unveiled by the SNP at their Glasgow conference in 2017 and due to be running by 2021, has quietly disappeared. And, with its failure to materialise, the Scotland project has found itself under the wings once again of others who will milk a profit from it at the expense of Scots, rather than finding itself under the purview of a straight-owned operator. This failure to build energy independence has only ever let us, either at the whims of despotic leaders like Putin, or price-gouging CEOs and profiteers. And, in all cases, it is the people of Scotland who suffer as a result. Energy independence achieved with the express goal of supplying cheap, clean energy over building the bank accounts of the wealthy is a necessary goal for the future, one that will keep electricity affordable and can bring a manufacturing revolution to Scotland. And that was an opinion piece by Stephen Payton. From The National, Tuesday the 15th of March 2022, from the news section, Energy Crisis, Elderly need more support amid skyrocketing bills, says Charity, by Ninian Wilson. A charity has called for an increase in support for low-income elderly people after a survey found almost all its respondents were worried about bills in April. Age Scotland, a leading charity representing the elderly, interviewed 331 over 50-year-olds to find out more about how the hike in energy costs will impact them. The concerns come after energy regulator Ofgem last month announced a rise in the price cap, which could see average annual bills climb by £693 from April. Some 94% of participants said they were worried about their energy bills, with more than 200 saying they believed the rising costs will adversely affect their daily lives. Brian Sloan, Chief Executive of Age Scotland, described the survey findings as wholly depressing to hear. Many respondents said they'll have to make stark choices between heating their homes or cutting back on other essentials, including food. The charity has called on the Scottish, UK and local governments to take urgent action to prevent tens of thousands more older people on the lowest incomes and those living with chronic health conditions being forced into fuel poverty when energy bills go up next month. Its key recommendations include more one-off payments to support older people on the lowest incomes, improving public awareness of sources of financial support and funding for energy efficiency measures and to consider implementing a price cap in homes whose primary heating source is not mains gas or electricity. One of the interviewees, who was over 75, said I will need to consider what I will have to live without to pay them bills. I will need to be more careful with buying food rather than treating myself from time to time. Rising energy bills will result in life being worse for many older people and they're going to be even lonelier because they cannot afford to live comfortably. Another woman was asked how she would cope if energy bills rose by as much as 50%. She said, I wouldn't. It's a death sentence. Sloan added, For the 219,000 older households in Scotland, living in full poverty, and those on low incomes in particular, these higher energy bills will mean cutting back on other essentials, including food, which is a completely unacceptable situation for any older person to face. We are calling on the Scottish, UK and local governments to intervene to help older people on lower incomes to stay warm and pay their energy bills. 
They should be proactive in exploring what more they can, more they can do to help and not just rely on what has been done in the past or what is most straightforward to deliver. He encouraged older people who are worried about their energy bills to call Aid Scotland's free helpline on 0800 1244 for advice and support. That's 0800-1244-222. A Scottish Government spokeswoman said, We are concerned that households are facing significant increases in energy bills and the cost of living. Powers relating to the energy markets remain reserved and Scotland ministers have repeatedly called for the UK Government to urgently take further action to support households, including a reduction in VAT, and targeted support for those on low incomes. The spokeswoman pointed to the Scottish Government's £150 cost of living payment, which is said to reach 73% of households, adding, a further £10 million has been allocated to continue the fuel insecurity fund into 2022-23, which supports people struggling with their energy bills. More than £160 million worth of funding has also been invested this year, to help make Scotland's homes and buildings warmer and more efficient, supporting their efforts to tackle fuel poverty, whilst helping householders manage their energy bills and reduce carbon emissions. This is as well as the support we provide to low-income households through other investment, including social security benefits like our Scottish Child Payment. And that was an article by Ninian Wilson. From The National, Tuesday the 15th of March 2022, from the news section, Homes for Ukraine, tens of thousands sign up to UK refugee scheme by Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. More than 100,000 people in the UK are expected to sign up to house Ukrainian refugees after Tory ministers launched a new scheme, but charities and opposition leaders have raised concerns about the plans. After almost three weeks of intense criticism over its response to the refugee crisis, the UK government on Monday launched its Homes for Ukraine programme, which allows people and organisations to give those fleeing the war a place to stay. Those accepted will be able to live and work in the UK for up to three years, with full and unrestricted access to benefits, healthcare, employment and other support. Those offering a place to stay will receive a tax-free monthly payment of £350, which will not affect benefit entitlements or council tax status. As of Tuesday morning, the Department for Levelling Up, Housing and Communities reported that 88,712 people had registered to house those fleeing the conflict. Meanwhile, the First Ministers of Scotland and Wales have submitted proposals to become super-sponsors of Ukrainian refugees. Nicola Sturgeon said she was frustrated not to have been given the go-ahead by Michael Gove when he announced the UK plans. Sturgeon explains Scotland is offering to welcome 3,000 refugees effectively immediately and to assume full responsibility for safeguarding, housing and support. She added, We've also set out how this can work within the UK scheme. All we need now is UKG to agree. Let's hope that that happens quickly. When Homes from Ukraine was initially launched, those trying to sign up were frustrated by issues with the website. Concerns have also been raised about requirements for those registered to provide a name for those who wish to sponsor and for refugees who are not Ukrainian nationals. 
but Foreign Office Minister James Cleverly has said he's actually quite proud that the UK government website crashed. He told LBC, The irony of this is I'm actually quite proud that the system struggled. We built it quickly. We could have, yes, we could have spent more time stress testing this website and delayed it a couple of days before launching. But, frankly, I'm glad we moved on quickly on this and we're moving quickly to ensure we're able to help the Ukrainian refugees. He added, I know this is a weird thing to say as a government minister. I'm glad the website crashed because it is a reflection of the generosity of the British people. Asked whether he will be personally taking part in the scheme, he replied, I have genuinely considered this. I've discussed this with my wife. I don't know whether our personal circumstances will allow us to do this right at the moment. As you know, Nick, my wife, she's going through medical treatment at the moment, but it's absolutely something that I'm considering. In phase one of the scheme, the government said households must have a named Ukrainian they wish to sponsor, rather than be matched with a refugee. Cleverly defended that measure, telling BBC Radio 4's Today programme, There are charities, faith groups who are already in contact with people in Ukraine, people that need help and support. So, actually, rather than introduce a potentially slow and bureaucratic process, where people have already got connections, and there are a huge number of people and organisations that have already got connections with Ukrainians, rather than replicate, duplicate and slow that down, we want to be as agile and as quick as possible. That's why we're saying that, you know, we've got organisations which are already in contact with Ukrainians. We've now set up this site so British people can register their willingness to help and support. And, actually, what we're looking to do is connect those both ends of that system together and do so in a way that's quick and efficient. The Homes for Ukraine webpage also does not mention residents of Ukraine who are not Ukrainian nationals. UK sponsors can be of any nationality with any immigration status, provided they have at least six months leave to remain within the UK, and will need to provide accommodation for a minimum of six months. The Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities clarified, after Gove's announcement, that the scheme will be open to Ukrainian nationals and immediately fam- immediate family members who were residents prior to January the 1st, but did not include residents who are not Ukrainian nationals as an eligible group. Amnesty International UK accused the government of trying to save face rather than setting out measures which genuinely respond to the needs of people fleeing the war in Ukraine, adding, After the Home Office chaotic and coldly bureaucratic response, the sponsorship scheme smacks of emergency PR from a government which has totally misread the public mood. We don't need to see the full details, but the UK refugee sponsorship schemes do not have a good track record. A similar sponsorship arrangement for Syrians led only to a few hundred people being accommodated. Claire Mosley, founder of the charity Care for Cali, said there could be significant implications for people who lived in Ukraine but are not Ukrainian nationals. She said, We are supporting people who have lived in Ukraine for many years who have been forced to run and have lost their homes and yet still not may not qualify. This is not a time to be excluding anyone who needs safety due to the terrible events in Ukraine, as doing so will be devastating for those concerned. And that was an art- article by Angus Cochrane. From The National, Tuesday the 15th of March 2022, from the sports section. 
Alfredo Morelos lands Colombia call-up as Rangers striker faces quick turnaround for Celtic showdown by Aidan Smith. Alfredo Morelos has landed a Colombia international call-up for their upcoming World Cup qualifiers against Bolivia and Venezuela. The Rangers striker was involved in the last squad for his country, but he was not given the nod to be involved in matches against Argentina and Peru. This resulted in a nightmare trip for Morelos, who missed Rangers' premiership clash against Celtic, where Ange Postecoglou's side ran out 3-0 winners. Morelos will now face a quick turnaround to get back for Rangers' clash with Celtic on April the 3rd. He will likely be involved against Venezuela on March the 30th, before having to fly back to Glasgow. On Morelos' slub last month, Van Bronckhorst said, Obviously, you don't want to lose players in the season, but we have to respect the rules of the FIFA calendar. As a club, we cannot do anything. It is a pity for him and also for us as a club that he is not even in the squad. He has been away two weeks, but not featured in the games. I don't know if he will be in the squad for the Argentina game. To not have him in the squad and Morelos not having minutes with his country, it is very harsh, especially for Morelos himself. That article was by Aidan Smith. From The National of Tuesday, the 15th of March, 2022, from the comment section, Robbie Mochri, how invasion of Ukraine could lead to Russian economic collapse. Knowing nothing about war, for more than a week after Russia invaded Ukraine, I started my day with a hurried trawl of Twitter to find out what had happened overnight. Gradually, I came across many much more knowledgeable people, all of whom seemed confident that the Russian advance had stalled and that its army could not win a swift victory, indeed that it would possibly become bogged down in a painful stalemate. The response of the United States and the European Union has been cautious, anxious not to provoke wider aggression, but determined to prevent a Russian victory. Ukrainians able to leave the country have been guaranteed the right to stay for some time in most EU countries. Poland has given refugees the right to work. Along with the US, European countries have provided substantial military hardware to Ukraine. Those are the traditional ways of helping a country facing aggression. It feels, though, as if we are in the early days of a second Cold War, with Russia on one side and a united Europe and United States on the other. There has been no formal declaration of hostilities. There are no explicit war aims. But we are seeing the use of overwhelming economic power to degrade the Russian economy and society. The economic historian Deirdre McCloskey has suggested that at some point, probably in the 17th century, Europeans started to replace their conception of virtue as being embodied within codes of chivalry, looking instead to civil law as the vehicle for virtue. The bourgeoisie started to replace the nobility. Swords started to be beaten into plowshares. Merchants rose to prominence. Countries began to trade 
while still often fighting wars. The huge wars in Europe in the 20th century led to the formation of the EU and the end of wars in Europe since 1945. The continent has become bourgeois. Today, forced to accept that Russia, in abandoning communism, simply appeared to embrace the rules-based international order in which countries settle their differences through diplomacy and negotiation, the European Union, NATO and the USA have turned to bourgeois warfare. Specifically, the decision to freeze the Russian central bank's euro assets, estimated to be about $400 billion, has led to a very sharp devaluation of the ruble. Russia's banking sector has been cut off from international markets. The country may be about to default on its international debt, preventing further borrowing. Tied to those financial sanctions, there has also been careful targeting of Russia's dependence on energy exports. Germany's decision to suspend the opening of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline is likely to cause a further jump in energy prices, but will be just the first step in cutting Russia off from its main export markets. Plans to prohibit the import of Russian oil and gas into the USA and the UK, together with determined efforts by the EU to find alternatives to Russian resources, are signs that Europe is at last treating energy security and decarbonisation of its economy with a fresh seriousness. As well as governments, there are many businesses which have decided to suspend activities in Russia. The first McDonald's in Moscow was seen as an important step in the opening up of the then Soviet Union. The closure of its restaurants may well mark the ending of the period in which Russia was a trusted partner. Visa and MasterCard have suspended their payment services. Even the large energy companies have divested themselves of interests in Russian companies and are unwilling to buy Russian oil and gas. They might all have one eye on the impact of sanctions, but this emphasises Russia's isolation. Bluntly, we think of Russia as a superpower because of its nuclear weapons. Until two weeks ago, most people thought of it as a great military power. But economically, Russia is weak. Imagine a world map in which country's size represents their national income. Russia would be slightly larger than Spain, but smaller than Italy. It would be less than half the size of Germany and it would be barely one-tenth of the size of the US. Fighting a war is eye-wateringly expensive, and it is very difficult to know for how long Russia can sustain its efforts. If it ends up in a war of attrition and needing to suppress a Ukrainian counterinsurgency, its economy would probably collapse. That seems to be the calculation of the US and its European allies. By making it impossible for Russia to achieve its stated war aims and enabling Ukraine to continue fighting effectively, 
it can perhaps force Russia to come chastened to the negotiating table. In fighting a fire, we can reduce the heat or we can starve it of oxygen. Finance is the oxygen of war. Starve Russia of finance and the US and Europe can smother this war. It's very early to imagine the terms under which this new Cold War will end, probably some years from now. Nonetheless, in the, in the last two weeks, it has become much more likely that NATO and the European Union will expand. Russia's war will end up confirming its relative weakness and its political isolation. Perhaps by the end of the decade, Ukraine will have joined the European Union and objection to Turkey's accession will finally have been overcome. That united, peaceful, bourgeois Europe will be Vladimir Putin's legacy. This article was by Robbie Mohri, Senior Lecturer at Heriot Watt University. From The National. Tuesday the 15th of March 2022, from the sports section. Matt O'Reilly rewarded for Celtic form with international Denmark call-up by Aidan Smith. Matt O'Reilly has been rewarded for his top Celtic form with an international call-up for Denmark. The ex-MK Donstar is eligible to play for England, Norway and Denmark. However, O'Reilly insists he very much has the Danes on his mind when he considers a call-up to the international scene, with the World Cup coming up at the end of 2022 in Qatar. The 21-year-old signed for Celtic in the January transfer window. He has been an instant success, with Arnish Postacoglu unearthing what appears to be another gem. Speaking about his hopes for a Danish call-up, O'Reilly said previously, I've had thoughts about the World Cup, I won't lie. It is definitely one of my bigger targets, I'd say. I feel like it's possible now. I'm playing for a club such as Celtic now, and I don't think that it is out of the question. There's still a long way to go for me to be able to get a call-up of that magnitude, so we'll see. Regarding picking up a nation, it is really rather early, as I haven't actually played for Denmark yet. I played for England youth teams, but at the same time I do feel quite Danish. My mum is Danish, and I can speak a decent amount, and I can understand a very good amount. In that sense, I don't think it is out of the question at all. If I did get a call up from Denmark, I don't think I'd be saying no. Christian Eriksen has also been named in the Denmark squad for this month's international friendlies, nine months after suffering a cardiac arrest during Euro 2020. The 30-year-old was gone for five minutes after his heart stopped during Denmark's clash with Finland last June but was resuscitated, and an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, ICD, was fitted, allowing him to continue his career. He signed for Brentford in January, and has since played three times, making back-to-back 90-minute appearances and backing an assist in Saturday's win over Burnley. That has been enough for head coach Kaspar Hjalmund to bring him straight back into the squad for matches against Holland on the March 26th and Serbia three days later. It is sure to be an emotional return for the playmaker, whose side went on to reach the semi-finals of Euro 2020. The match against Serbia will be Eriksson's first return to Parken, where the incident happened in a group game against Finland. This article was by Aidan Smith. 
the national politics on Wednesday the 16th of March. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe on her way home from Iran. An article written by Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe is said to be on her way home as her nightmare detention in Iran comes to an end. The British-Iranian mother looks set to be freed alongside fellow detainee Anusha Ashuri, with both said to be leaving via Tehran airport. Tulip Siddiq, Zaghari Ratcliffe's MP in Hampstead and Kilburn, wrote on Twitter, Nazanin is at the airport in Tehran and on her way home. The Foreign Office has not commented on the reports, and earlier on Tuesday, Boris Johnson said negotiations about Zaghari Ratcliffe were moving forward, but going right up to the wire. The apparent breakthrough will bring an end to the ordeal for Ms Zaghari Ratcliffe, which began in 2016, when she was detained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard at Imam Khomeini Airport after a holiday visit to Iran, where she showed her daughter Gabriella to her parents. There's still nervousness in Whitehall about the situation, with sources stressing the pair will not be free until they're actually on a plane out of Iran. There have been signs of progress in delicate negotiations between the UK and Iran in recent days. The Prime Minister cautiously raised hopes on Wednesday that the dual national six-year ordeal could come to a close after suggestions the mother of one has had her passport returned. Ms Zaghari Ratcliffe's family, however, were keeping their hopes cooled, having experienced numerous setbacks and disappointments during the saga. Mr Johnson confirmed the British negotiating team was working in Tehran to secure the release of dual nationals, while Ms Zaghari Ratcliffe at the time remained at her family home in the Iranian capital. I really don't think I should say much more, I'm sorry, although things are moving forward, he told broadcasters at the Emirates Palace Hotel in Abu Dhabi. I really shouldn't say much more right now, just because those negotiations continue to be underway and we're going right up to the wire. While details of the negotiations remain unclear, it seems they're linked to a $530 million debt dating back to the 1970s, owed to Iran by the UK. According to the AP news agency, Tehran says the UK has settled a long overdue debt of $530 million with Iran. The UK government accepts it should pay the legitimate debt for an order of 1,500 chieftain tanks that was not fulfilled after the Shah was deposed and replaced by a revolutionary regime. The Tehran regime remains under strict sanctions, however, which has complicated efforts to repay the money. Ms Zaghari Ratcliffe was arrested in April 2016 as she prepared to fly back to the UK. She was accused of plotting to overthrow the Iranian government and sentenced to five years in jail, spending four years in Tehran's Evin prison and one under house arrest. Both the UK government and Ms Zaghari Ratcliffe have always denied the allegations. In 2017, then-Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson told MPs that Ms Zaghari Ratcliffe had been in Iran training journalists. The bogus claim was jumped on by Iranian authorities, who said it was proof Ms Zakari Ratcliffe was lying about her reasons for being in the country. Mr Johnson later apologised. Her husband, Richard Ratcliffe, spent 21 days on hunger strike last year in London to draw attention to his wife's case. Responding to Wednesday's reports, Nicola Sturgeon commented, Let's all keep everything crossed until Nazanin and Anusha Ashuri are actually back on UK soil but what a massive ray of sunshine this would be in an otherwise dark world, and such a tribute to those who've campaigned long and hard for this moment. An article written by Angus Cochran. The National News 
on Wednesday the 16th of March. Scotland's adult disability payment to end benefit tests for those with lifelong disabilities. An article written by Laura Webster, News and Features Editor. Benefit test reassessments for people with lifelong disabilities will be brought to an end by the Scottish Government in the coming weeks, it has emerged. Holyrood is taking over responsibility for paying out adult disability benefits from the Department for Work and Pensions at Westminster next week. At the moment, under UK Government rules, people who have lifelong conditions are continually required to attend reassessments in order to continue receiving funds. But now this approach will be scrapped in Scotland, with the SNP government planning a more compassionate approach. According to Social Security Minister Ben McPherson, people receiving personal independence payments and disability living allowance will not need to apply for the new adult disability payment from the Scottish government. They'll be automatically moved onto this system in the coming months. Mr McPherson told the BBC about the changes the Holyrood system will implement, including short-term funding for those going through an appeals process and new criteria for terminal illness payments. If they have a disability or a long-term health condition that's unlikely to change, we're looking to provide indefinite awards, which means that people will not need to reapply for their benefit or be reviewed, the minister explained. He assured claimants that they will not have to go through undignified physical and mental assessments and added that the private sector will no longer play a role in the system. The change has been welcomed by disability groups and advice bodies. Citizens Advice Scotland praised the simplification of the claims process and described the adult disability payment as a huge change from what came before. A spokesperson for the Department of Work and Pensions said, We support millions of people every year and our priority is that they get the benefits to which they're entitled as soon as possible and to ensure they receive a supportive and compassionate service. Award rates and durations are based on individual circumstances and needs and the likelihood of those needs changing. For personal independence payments, they can vary from nine months to an ongoing award with a light touch review after 10 years. Reviews are a key feature of the benefit and ensure that payments accurately match the current needs of claimants. An article written by Laura Webster. The National Politics on Wednesday the 16th of March. Tories stand Deniston candidate with interest in KKK commentator David Duke. An exclusive front-page article written by Hamish Morrison, political reporter. The Tories have been challenged to justify standing a former UKIP candidate with an interest in far-right commentators, including the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Jamie Robertson stood for the Eurosceptic Party, formerly headed by Nigel Farage, at local elections in Scotland. The National can reveal he follows far-right channels on YouTube, has called for a ban on Islamic slaughter methods and once approvingly shared a video featuring a Brexit campaigner who was filmed in 2019 calling a Remainer a F with seven stars traitor at a rally. He'll stand for election in the Deniston ward of Glasgow City Council in May for the Scottish Tories. Mr Robertson's Facebook page shows he shared a petition calling for a ban on halal butchery in 2016. He wrote, This goes against our traditions. At least the animals should be stunned. Mr Robertson, who received just 105 votes when he last stood to be a councillor in Shettleston in Glasgow, also follows the far-right vlogger Carl Benjamin, also known as Sargon of Akkad. Mr Benjamin, who posts YouTube videos railing against political correctness and feminism, 
lost the ability to make money from his videos after he made repeated jokes about raping Labour MP Jess Phillips. In response to Ms Phillips tweeting about violence against women, Mr Benjamin told the MP he wouldn't even rape her. He also follows an account called David Duke's Radio Clips, which exclusively posts videos of the former Ku Klux Klan chief speaking in interviews about topics such as race, Zionism and the popularity of former US President Barack Obama. Mr Duke ran the race hate group between 1974 and 1980 and was described by the Anti-Defamation League as perhaps America's most well-known racist and anti-Semite. Of the seven videos posted by the account, only two have not had warnings placed on them for inappropriate or offensive content. He called a video on a panel discussion on wokeness, featuring Dr Neil McRae, as an informed talk. Dr McRae is a senior mental health expert at King's College London who was subjected to an internal probe in 2019 after being filmed calling a pro-EU protester at a Brexit party rally an F with seven stars traitor and brandishing a union flag in his face. Kim Long, who will be challenging the seat for the Scottish Greens, told the National councillors have a duty to stand up for the human rights and equality of all Glasgow residents. She added... That means we have to work hard to tackle racism, xenophobia, misogyny and other forms of bigotry. It would be very concerning if a candidate held views that put them at odds with work towards a fairer Glasgow. The Conservative Party should clarify Mr Robertson's views before Deniston goes to vote. Anne McLaughlin, the SNP MP for Glasgow North East, which covers Deniston, said no Tory candidate would be appropriate to represent the area. She added, someone who openly follows a vlogger who thinks it's acceptable to tell a woman that, effectively, she's not attractive enough for him to rape her, is far from appropriate. It's simple to unfollow someone. You just click a button. It takes one second. The fact that he hasn't done that speaks volumes. I don't want him as one of my councillors, and I don't think I'll be alone amongst voters in the Deniston ward. The Tories insist Mr Robertson had subscribed to the accounts by mistake. He unfollowed them yesterday after the party was approached by the National. A party spokesman said, All candidates' personal views are their own. Jamie didn't realise he'd subscribed to these channels and has now rectified that mistake. An exclusive article written by Hamish Morrison. The National, March 17. Boris Johnson's Saudi Arabia visit. Prime Minister challenged as country executes three more people. Report by Craig Meekin. Boris Johnson appeared to win no oil commitments from Saudi Arabia as he defended himself from allegations of going from dictator to dictator to find new fuel sources after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Prime Minister said he challenged Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman on his human rights record during a meeting of about 1 hour and 45 minutes in Riyadh on Wednesday. But Johnson refused to go into specifics and insisted the Gulf state was changing for the better, despite announcing further executions in the wake of its largest mass execution in modern history. He visited Saudi and its neighbour, the United Arab Emirates, while trying to find new fuel supplies to lessen the cost of living crisis after the response to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Johnson, who smiled 
and warmly shook hands with the Saudi Crown Prince, accused of ordering the assassination of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, insisted closer ties with the kingdom did not mean we can't stick to our principles. The Prime Minister welcomed a very productive conversation on increasing oil production, currently capped by the Saudi-led organisation of the petroleum exporting countries, OPEC. He told broadcasters, a lot of agreement that it's important to avoid inflation, to avoid the damaging economic consequences, an agreement that we need to work together to bring peace to Ukraine. But pressed if he had won a decision on increasing supply to reduce the shock of the West moving away from Russian fuel, he said, I think you need to talk to the Saudis about that. Conservative MPs and human rights watchdogs were among those calling on the Prime Minister to question the Gulf states on their track records after Saudi Arabia on Saturday executed 81 people convicted of crimes ranging from killings to belonging to militant groups. The state-run Saudi press agency announced three more individuals had been executed on the day of Johnson's visit. He told reporters, I always raise human rights issues as British Prime Ministers before me have, some time after time. It's best if the details of those conversations are kept private. They're more effective that way. But I think you can also see that in spite of that news you've referred to today, things are changing in Saudi Arabia. We want to see them continue to change. And that's why we see value in engaging with Saudi Arabia and why we see value in the partnership. He declined to say whether he expressed displeasure at human rights abuses, instead saying, I expressed the long-standing view of the UK government, as you would expect. At his first stop in Abu Dhabi, where he met UAE Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, Johnson pointed towards Saudi Arabia, announcing a £1 billion investment in green aviation fuel in Teesside. And he said, that's the kind of thing we want to encourage. Doesn't in any way we cannot stick to our principles and raise those issues that we all care about. Johnson pledged that his long-awaited energy strategy will come next week and include a massive jump forward on renewables, more nuclear, using our own hydrocarbons more effectively and sourcing fuel from outside Russia. However, Downing Street's account of the meeting with Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed did not contain any indication Johnson secured any kind of commitment on increasing oil production. Instead, it said, the Prime Minister set out his deep concerns about the chaos unleashed by Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and stressed the importance of working together to improve stability in the global energy market. The Prime Minister's official spokesman told reporters 
that the PM raised human rights issues but added, I don't have any more details, leaving open to interpretation the extent to which they discussed abuses. Critics have particularly questioned the move to strengthen ties with Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who was largely shunned by the West after United States intelligence alleged he ordered the murder of Khashoggi at the Kingdom's Consulate in Istanbul in 2018, something the Saudi ruler denies. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer said, Going cap in hand from dictator to dictator is not an energy strategy. On the latest executions, Maya Foa, the director of human rights advocacy group Reprieve said, By travelling to meet Mohammed bin Salman so soon after a mass execution, Boris Johnson clearly signalled that in return for oil, the UK will tolerate even the gravest human rights abuses. Carrying out these executions, while the leader of a Western power is in Saudi soil, was a provocative act designed to flaunt the Crown Prince's power and impunity to the world. One person who did embrace him, however, was the Russian president, with the Prince and Putin sharing a high five and a laugh at a G20 summit in the months after Khashoggi's death. Johnson has argued he needs to build the widest possible coalition to address Putin's attack on Ukraine. Report by Craig Meehan The National, March 17 Scotland's economy showing resilience, says Finance Secretary. Report by Jane MacLeod Gross domestic product, GDP growth of 1.3% in the last three months of 2021 shows the resilience of Scotland's economy, Finance Secretary Gate Forbes has said. The growth was achieved at the same time the emergence of the Corona Omicron variant forced restrictions on some businesses. But Forbes warned that there are still challenges for the economy linked to the rising cost of living and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. New figures from the Scottish Government show GDP grew more in Scotland than in the UK as a whole over the final quarter of last year. Across the UK, GDP growth of 1% was recorded in the period October to December, but over the 12 months of 2021, the UK saw economic growth of 7.5% compared to 6.9% in Scotland. GDP in Scotland for October to December 2021 was 5.9% higher than the same period in 2020, with the UK as a whole performing better with a 6.5% rise. In the most recent quarter, the services sector which makes up the majority of Scotland's economy, grew by 1.5%. The Scottish Government figures also show there was growth of 1% in the construction sector over October to December, while the production sector was up by 0.3%. Forbes said, recording 1.3% growth 
during the fourth quarter of last year demonstrates the resilience of Scotland's businesses and the wider economy. This is despite the emergence of the Omicron variant at the end of last year and necessary public health restrictions which impacted primarily on services. Over the year, compared to the fourth quarter of 2020, the economy has grown by 5.9%. We continue to face challenges, especially with the rising cost of living and the potential economic impact of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. The national strategy for economic transformation will be fundamental to building on progress made by helping the economy become greener, fairer and more prosperous. Report by Jane McLeod. The National, March 17. Scottish Tories selected former Orange Master for Irvine South. Report by Xander Richards. The Scottish Conservatives selected a member and former Master of the Orange Order to run in the upcoming local elections the National can reveal. This paper was contacted by a constituent concerned that Callum McLean, the Tories pick to run for council in Irvin South, should not be anywhere near government. Christina Larson, an SNP councillor for the same ward, said that while she did not want to comment on individual candidates, the selection was concerning. She said, Local government is about giving communities a voice, bringing people together and working as a team to deliver what residents feel best meets the needs in their own localities. I do not want to comment on any individual candidates, however, it is concerning that anyone seeking to stand for election in May feels that they are able to properly represent and work with their constituents in this way when they are associated with such a deeply divisive organisation. The National understands that Maclean was formerly the master of the Bowtree Hill Orange Lodge but is currently only a member. He is also reportedly a member of the Stevenson and Salcoats Apprentice Boys Club and was formerly in the Blood and Thunder Newtown Defenders Flute Band. The Tories did not deny Maclean held or had held any of the positions mentioned. On February 12, the North Ayrshire and Arran Conservatives posted a photo to Facebook showing campaigners having a great day out leafleting for Callum Maclean in Irvine South. However, when the party was contacted for comment, they told the National that Maclean was no longer their candidate. The Scottish Tories said this had nothing to do with his association with the Orange Order, but was due to Maclean's work commitments instead. A Scottish Tory spokesperson said in a statement, All Scottish Conservative candidates are standing to beat the SNP and deliver on people's local priorities. Callum Maclean decided himself not to stand in this election because of work commitments. It comes after Anna Sarwar's Labour Party 
also face questions for standing a former leader of the Orange Order in the upcoming council elections. Henry Dunbar, who served as Orange Lodge Chief from 2010 to 2016, has been confirmed as a candidate in Airdrie North. Anti-sectarian organisations show racism the red cat and call it out, condemned the move, with the party said to have opened its doors to the ex-leader of a deeply divisive organisation. Report by Xander Richards. From the National, Thursday the 17th of March 2022, from the Sports Section. Giovanni van Bronckhorst backs Rangers midfielder Ryan Jack to shine for Scotland after international recall by Christopher Jack. Giovanni van Bronckhorst has backed Ryan Jack to continue his fine club form for his country after earning a recall to Steve Clark's Scotland squad. The midfielder has been named in Clark's group for the upcoming fixture schedule and could return to action in dark blue when Poland make the trip to Hampden next month. Scotland will also play Wales or Austria during the break, as Jack, who is set to start against Red Star Belgrade this evening, gets the chance to establish himself at international level once again, following a lengthy period out of action through injury. The 30-year-old was cruelly ruled out of the European Championships last summer, but is now ready to feature for Clark's side after a series of stunning showings at home and abroad for Rangers in recent weeks. Van Bronckhorst said, of course you want your players to be available for games, so it's the same for Ryan. We missed him for a long time this season through injury. You can see in his performances what he brings to the team, which is very positive for me. To have him back in the squad in these last weeks has been good for me and is also good for the team, because we have a broad selection of players from whom we can choose. His performances are going really well and he has been picked again for Scotland. He will give his best to Scotland as well. His character, his attitudes and performances will benefit Scotland, so I am more than happy to have him back in these last weeks. This article was by Christopher Jack. Reported from the National on the 17th of March 2022, from the Culture section. Former chemist turns her hand to baked goods at Cake Lab, by Anita Bandani. Welcome to the cake shop and cafe with a twist. Cake Lab, the brainchild of owner Hayley Marshall, is a gem just off the shore on Kunze Street where people are invited to customise their own unique cakes. With choices ranging from a classic red velvet sponge base to more off-the-wall offerings such as candy floss sponge and icings from cola to mango, at Cake, Cake Lab customers are encouraged to take full creative control. Interestingly, Haley comes from a science background, having graduated with a Master's in Chemistry back in 2011. She tells us, I wanted to combine my two passions through Cake Lab and thought this was the perfect way to do so. She started her cafe initially from humble beginnings. Cake Lab started life in a small trailer in a shopping centre. In 2020, Cake Lab found its permanent home in Anstruther. However, this coincided with the start of the COVID pandemic, which posed some challenges. However, these challenges led Haley to think on her feet and start afternoon tea deliveries, something that she continues to date Cake Lab. These did extremely well, she tells us. It definitely helped us keep going. Haley bakes everything herself from scratch and always has vegan and gluten-free options available to appeal to all customers. While our custom cakes are currently available exclusively online, in-store we offer everything from biscuits and cookies, tray bakes and scones, 
which are rumoured to be among the best for miles around. We also offer pu- puppuccinos. Treat your canine friends can enjoy as we proudly a dog-friendly cafe. Our homemade soup, toasties and sandwiches, along with regular specials, are always popular too. Our coffee is sourced from the popular local company Miller's Coffee. Indeed, Halley tells us, the community of Anstruther have flocked to Cake Lab in their droves. I chose to start my business in Anstruther as I'm from here and at the Scourge's location by the beach right on my doorstep. Everyone here has been so supportive. The cafe has turned into a real community-orientated space. The article was by Anita Bandani. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.